The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man, give, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of men. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's go pray. Jesus, we thank you um, for this moment. We acknowledge you your presence in the midst of us. We thank you for your word, Father. We thank you that you chose to create us. Prepare our hearts today, Lord, to receive your words and receive you, to understand you deeply, Lord. Um, be with Randall today um, and everything that he will say and everything that he will do may be to glorify you so as the same for us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, my name is Randall. I get to be the pastor here at Grace City. And, uh, you know, it's a great honor. Um, you know, we've been going over the book of Genesis from the beginning of 2019. And so we started out uh, this past month talking specifically about God. Uh, we talked about uh, God in creation and him being the creator and then being relational and then God being savior uh, last week. And now this week we're jumping into um, the gospel in Genesis, um, and specifically the first family, the first family. So we're starting out uh, by going back a little bit in Genesis 2, 18 through 25, um, and we're going to be talking about today the beautiful design in which God created uh, man, woman, and really from the beginning, the first wedding in marriage. Um, so again, over this past month, we've been looking through the book of Genesis and we've been going back to the beginning. And, and what's interesting is up to the point of Genesis 1 and into 2, as God is creating, he's looking at all that he created and said, uh, this is good. This is good. This is good. But then we get to the place where God looks at his uh, creation and he says, uh, this is not good. This is not good. And so he looks at Adam and says to Adam, uh, it's not good for man to be alone. Uh, so this is where we get the first wedding. This is where it's birthed out of is this idea of God looking at Adam and saying it's not good for man to be alone. Now, this is important because there's a theme throughout the Bible. And it's this thread that just goes throughout and it's based on this idea of marriage. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament tells us that Jesus um, is the husband and that his church is the bride. 
And so what we see is uh, the Bible starts out with this marriage, this wedding um, in the garden. And eventually the, the climax of the Bible is a marriage, a wedding that happens in Revelation 21. So Jesus is pictured as the husband and the church, the bride, and all things will be made um, and created back to what it was meant to be. It was restored back to what it was meant to be. Um, but there's much confusion in our culture today, in our society, about marriage. Um, and so I look out today at some of you, and you're single, and you're thinking to yourself, I'd like to be married. I, would, I, I am thinking about marriage. Marriage would be a good thing for me. But you're thinking to yourself, I don't know where to start. No one's really told me about what marriage is and even God's view of marriage. And so I'm a little confused on that. And I hope to help you in your confusion just a little bit. Okay, and so some of you, uh, you're thinking to yourselves, I'm never getting married. I will never get married because maybe you've had um, some experiences where past relational hurts and things that have come into your life. And you say, there, there's no way that I would ever think about marriage. Um, and then there are some of us who've written off marriage because we've experienced uh, maybe bad models uh, of marriage. And so it might be looking at your parents and saying, well, I looked at their life and they were miserable and, and they didn't have a good marriage. And so for me, that's not something that I want for my life. And so you've just written off uh, marriage and relationships because of past wounds. Uh, there's an article that came out uh, this past week. I was, it caught my eye. It was in Medium, uh, which is a, uh, a news outlet online. And, and it was entitled this. It said, 2069, a snapshot of millennial retirement. It says what the golden years will look like for today's young people. And here's what it said. According to U.S. Census Bureau, more and more young people are opting not to get married or partner up, and a growing number are choosing not to have children, which down the road may mean a rise in so-called elder orphans, seniors with no spouse, children, or other immediate family. And so this is a reality that is growing within our culture today. And again, some of it might be stemming from just experience and things that we've seen and, and thinking, um, you know, that, that's, that's not for me. But then there might be others of us who, who are single and, and just thinking, why is there such a pressure that's placed on our culture of saying, well, I need to be married and I need to have kids and I need to do all these things. So again, we need to explore and see what does God say about all of these things because it's super important for us. Uh, today's message won't be exhaustive, but I hope it's going to be a practical start for, for many of us here today. And so let's look back at the first wedding to help guide us and to help ground us in what God's view is of all of these things. So our text today is Genesis 2, uh, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. And we need to ask, what does this text teach us specifically about marriage? Well, here's what it teaches us. It teaches us three things. I'm gonna give you all three up front. The first one is this. The place of marriage, the test of marriage, the covenant of marriage. The place of marriage, the test of marriage, the covenant of marriage. And so the first one is the place of marriage. Now look at verse 18 in the first part. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good for, that the man should be alone. God here 
gives an assessment on human life up to this point. And there are two parts of this observation that we need to take away. The first part is this, that God designed us to place our relationship with him first. Now we need to see the order here. God creates man and he could have said, I'm going to just create man and woman. But he didn't do that. He created man. And what we see later is that there's this commentary of what's happening, the narrative of what, what's happening. And so he gives them this specific job, this task to name all the, the creatures. But he is still in this place where it's just him. Why did he do that? Because God designed us to, to first know our relationship with him first. Now, this is subtle, but it's very important. Because many times what we do is we take our relationship with God and we put it to the side and we look at human relationships and we say, God, you're back here, but I'm going to go ahead and start my relationships with everyone else around me because that's maybe that's all we know. And what it can do is, is we take God out of his place in our lives, which should be first. That's the way he created it to be. And we start to put people in that place of God. See, it's, it's what we talked about last week. It's the, the sin in which we, we place things above God and we put them in positions where he needs to be. And so what happens is we take people, relationships, and we place them up here as number one priority in our life. And what that's called in the Bible is idolatry. Idolatry. Taking something that's a good thing and making it a God thing. And so what we do with relationships is we take that relationship and we put it up here as number one. And what happens, and many times what happens, and you've probably experienced it before, it can become toxic and very unhealthy. Because what it does is it puts it, a good thing, into a God position. It happens all the time. Because our culture romanticizes relationships to the point where we feel like the other person has the power, the power to fulfill our lives. The creation story and the fall of man that we talked about last week should point us to the fact that no one can take God's place in our lives other than God himself. No one can take that place. September 2017, Psychology Today put out an article entitled, Are You Among the Growing Number of Unhappy Married People? And here's what the author wrote. She says, marriage these days seems to be falling out of favor. Not only are young couples uh, choosing marriage less today than ever before, the number of those who consider themselves happily married is also in decline. In his 2012 book, You Can Be Right or You Can Be Married, Dana Shapiro, Dana Adam Shapiro wrote that as few as 17% of couples are content in their partner. 17%. Vicki Larson journalist and co-author of The New I Do, uh, Reshaping Marriage for Skeptics, Realists, and Rebels, cites that six of every 10 are unhappily married and four out of 10 have considered leaving their partner. A study done by the National Opinion Research Center in 2014 revealed that the trend is getting worse, not better. People are becoming less and less happy in their marriages as time goes on. We need to ask, because this is an epidemic. Why is there so much unhappiness? 
Well, I believe it comes back to the position of marriage in our lives. See, one major reason our culture has fallen for this idea of it's only about making me happy. Relationships are only about making me happy is what Ernest Becker coined as the romantic solution. The romantic solution in his book, The Denial of Death. Here's what he says. Once we realize what the religious solution did, we can uh, see how modern man edged himself into an impossible situation. So what he's saying is that at some point we had this idea of God, right? This belief in God, something bigger than ourselves. But what we've done in our modern societies, we push God out of the way. We said there is no God. And so he says, we're, we're left with this dilemma. If he no longer had God, how is he to do this? How is he, you know, to, to solve the issues in his life? One of the first ways that occurred to him, as Rank saw, was the romantic solution. He fixed his urge to cosmic heroism onto another person in the form of a love, love object. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in a, in a love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual, Spirituality, which one referred to another dimension of things, is now brought down to this earth and given form in another individual human being. Salvation itself is no longer referred to as an abstraction like God, but can be sought in the beautification of the other. What he's saying here is that the position has shifted. If there's no God, if God's out of the picture, then now I need something else to replace God. And so what I'm going to do is think that it's going to be solved through another person. See, before anything, God makes it clear that our relationship with him comes first. But secondly, God didn't design us in a way in which we only needed God. Up to this point, everything, again, had been made good, but now there's a shift. It's a dramatic shift. What's happening here, this should be a dramatic part of the narrative because God says it's not good. What's not good? Loneliness. You see, God made us for relationship with him and with others. And God's part, uh, th this is an extreme act of humility. Think about it. God didn't have to create us in a way where we needed something other than him. But he chose to. That he made us so that we would need other people. That's an extreme act of humility on God's part. But do you see that I didn't say he made us in a way where we needed to be married? I didn't say that. See, this is important. God doesn't say, it's not good for man to be single. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. If God said, it's not good for man to be single, then everybody would need to be married. But he said, it's not good for man to be alone. See, in Christianity, this is unique. Singleness is lifted up as a gift like no other religion or society in the world. Singlenesses. How? Timothy Keller says it very well. Here's what he says. He says, single people, you have to remember Christianity is the only major religion that was started by a single person. 
Traditional societies believe you're nobody unless you're somebody else's spouse. But our faith was started by a single man. Another, one of the great founders of Christianity, St. Paul, who was single, has an interesting place in 2 Corinthians where he says, you want to be married? Great. You're not married? Great. That was unique in antiquity because in ancient times and in traditional cultures, you're nobody unless you're married. But Paul says the relationship every single Christian has with God through Christ is so intimate and so great. And the relationship Christian brothers and sisters have inside the family of God is so great. No one who's single should be seen as a second class person. You are fully human as a single person. After all, the person who saved us was single. Okay, so there is something in our culture that pushes us and romanticizes relationships and says, you are not fully human unless you have somebody, a spouse, kids. That's not how God said it. He set it up in a way where we need him and we need other people around us. But it's not the primary goal of our lives. So we need to understand because if we don't put God in his proper place, we'll take our relational void and we'll start to try and fill it. We'll try to fill it with things that we think are gonna be the solution and we can easily fall into this trap of the romantic solution. Uh, Preacher John Newton once prayed, he prayed this, he said, save us from the wonderfulness of marriage. You know what that means? (laughs) the idea that this is gonna be the thing that solves all the problems in my life. Save us from the wonderfulness of it. Second part, that's only the first point. Like that's heavy, all right. Well, it's just point one. Point two, the test of marriage. The test of marriage. God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Uh, Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, uh, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, there are two terms here that are really important. Um, A couple weeks ago, Ryan touched on uh, one of them and the first term is uh, found in verse 20. It's the word helper. And again, when Ryan preached on it, he did a fantastic job. He talks about this idea of what we think of as helper, and we think it's a, it's a lowly term. It's, it's something that we shouldn't really respect. But actually, um, what this word translates to, it's a, it's a military term used as uh, for an army that was outmatched, for an army that didn't have enough to defeat the enemy. And so reinforcements are brought in to win the battle. And it's a term that is used specifically of God and scripture. It's God helping man. So this in no way is a demeaning term at all. And so the word helper, but he says he he needs to find a helper that's fit for him. Now, Gordon Wenham points out specifically about this word fit. 
here's what the Hebrew translation is. Like opposite. Like opposite. Like, here, here's how it would literally translate. It would say, I will make a helper like opposite him. Here's what this means. God designed men and women alike, but different. Why? Because we were made to complement one another. But if we don't understand that that's God's design, it can cause major friction in our lives. Major friction in our relationships. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, now, something that has caused me major friction and frustration in my lives, life is when my kids say, Hey, Dad, can you put this toy together? Sure. It's easy. But one of the things that I don't usually do is read the instructions. I'm just one of those people that's just like, you know what? I can just kind of feel this one out, and I'm just going to put this together because I can look at the pieces and just, it's just going to come together. And what I find out a lot of times is those things that I think are going to be pretty easy to put together are like opposite. I'm like, what, what in the world? Like, well, it looks like it's supposed to be, but it's just not working. And so there's this major friction that happens in my life and I get mad and I start to throw temper tantrums because it's not working out the way I thought it would. And as God is looking at man and woman, he's saying, this is how marriage is going to be. He's saying, okay, I want to make you like opposite. Why? Remember what he said from the beginning? I'm going to create man in, in our image, in our likeness. And so what this is a reflection of is God himself. See, the Trinity. Co-equal in power and strength and might yet distinct in function, the way they're made, right? He made us. So he's going to, we're going to reflect God in this. And this is the test of marriage. This is the test of your relationships. And if you don't get what I'm saying, at the time, this, if we don't get this, this can be very explosive in our lives. You've experienced it before. This can cause major frustration because you are made to see things differently. You were made to. You were made to complement one another. And, and if, if you don't know that, you'll be saying this. This is going to resonate with some of you. Why don't you think like this? Because this is how I think. Why are you acting like that? Because I would never have acted that way. And you're going to get frustrated with that other person because here's what we think to ourselves. You should be like me. You should be like me. This is the way I do things. And to add to it all, do you know what one of the most explosive triggers are for a guy? The idea that they need help. Right? The idea that they need help. I remember the first time uh, my wife, before she was my wife, uh, we were in college. We met there. And uh, she came in, it was, we went to a Christian school. So it was like those, they had like a couple times in a year when you can go visit the opposite gender's dorm. 
my, one of my friends that went to college with, Justin, he's here, and he, you know, he was there. And so um, there was only certain times a year we could do that. And so um, Laura came and she visited my dorm room. I was like, great, I'm going to get this place all nice, you know, and it's going to be awesome. She's going to come over and see, you know, my place. She'd be like, wow, it's so clean. I remember the first time she stepped in and she looked at uh, where I slept. Uh, it was a sheet and a sleeping bag and a pillow. <laughs> and to me, when I looked at that, I saw that is practical. <laughs> so practical, you know what I mean? Like, it's so easy to make my bed in the morning because I've got a sleeping bag and all I got to do is zip that thing up and boom, it's there, it's ready to go. When my wife looked at that, she thought, that is disgusting. <laughs> she said, you're like all like, so do you like watch that sleeping bag or anything? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. Here's what I found over the years. There are things that she looks at that I've done and she would have done it completely different. And I can either hold my fist and shake my fist and say, you know what? I'm right because this is the most practical thing and we need to be sleeping in sleeping bags. Or, and what I found over the years is, is that she was right. That was disgusting. And I didn't see it then, but I needed some major help. I needed some major help. And so, you know, there is friction, but in many ways, what it should be is iron sharpening iron. If you come to it humbly and you say, okay, God, like, okay, you made us differently and I don't understand all those things, but um, help me be teachable. That test, the test turns into a blessing. Okay. Last, the covenant of marriage, verse uh, 22 through 25. Some of you may say, um, why do you use the word covenant here? We don't use that term in, in modern language. Like, why do we use that word covenant when we talk about marriage? Like, what does it mean? I don't even understand that. Well, the reason is, is because we don't have a word within our modern language to really capture the beauty of this word covenant. We don't. Uh, commitment, ah, not really. You know, and that's, that's the thing with our culture. I remember seeing a meme, it says, uh, the only thing I'm committed to are my commitment issues. And so we have a lot of commitment issues within our culture, and I get that, but the covenant and commitment, still not there. Promise just doesn't cut it. See, a covenant is not a consumer relationship. A consumer relationship. We all know consumer relationships because many of us, we, we use Yelp and Google to check things out, right? Like I, I use Google and, and Yelp and all those things to check things out uh, because I want to know about the place. But here's the questions we ask. When we look those things up, how does this place fit my needs? Is it the right price range or are the people nice there? And if this place stops fitting me, then I'll find another place to fit my needs. And that relationship's over. That's a consumer relationship. That's not a covenant. A covenant relationship is saying, I'm going to adjust my needs to what you need. I'm, I'm going to adjust myself, no matter what, to fulfill the promise I made to you because I made a promise 
that I'll be there no matter what. You see, one of the things that uh, we were, I did a wedding yesterday. We're driving up, and one of the things it said, it said, um, it was kind of funny. It said, for better, uh, for worse, for richer, for poorer, last chance to run. Okay? <laughs> so I, I looked at that, and I thought, you know, I, I mean, when you understand the weight of a covenant, there might be something in you that says, man, I need to run. Because that's not natural. That's not the way we naturally do things. But that's what marriage is intended to be. You're going to see the covenant uh, relationship talk all through this verse. See, there are three parts in in this verse. Verse uh, 23. What we see here is a binding up, a binding together. Here's what it says. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Matthew Henry, who was a commentator on this text, um, he said that it's interesting that God took from the rib because he didn't take from the head. He didn't take from the feet, but he took right here the rib. Why the rib? Equal, yet distinct. And this was the closest place to the heart. See, this is a binding up and saying, no longer is it just me, but we are bound together for life. I'm taking your rib. Then look at verse 24. Sacrifice. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so what we see here in, in I. Again, doing the wedding yesterday, um, one of the things that I say to uh, the, the father and the mother, I say, you know what, things are going to change here for your relationship with your daughter and with your son. Things are changing right now. And uh, one, one dad uh, said it yesterday, he says, you need to cleave to your spouse Because this, he said, that's the most important relationship now in your life. And that's what's happening here. He's saying, hold fast. This word hold fast is to cleave, to hold on to one another. It says they shall become one flesh. And this this idea of becoming one flesh is is something that that, that is miraculous that God does. It's it's more than just physical or anything, but it's, it's every level together. And finally, look at verse 25, vulnerability. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, God does this wedding ceremony. He says, here's how it goes. And he says, uh, it says they were naked, were not ashamed. Now I'm gonna probably, it's probably gonna be uh, something that's gonna just maybe blow your mind. You're like, I've never heard that before. I remember the first time I heard that um, you should, I remember I was talking with a friend, I was in ninth grade, and he said, um, hey, I'm, I'm gonna save myself and not have sex till marriage. And I looked at him and I said, dude, you're crazy. I remember the first time I heard that. I said, you're, you're crazy, man. Like, how is that even possible? 
right? Because I'm coming in with a mindset where I didn't, I've never even heard the Christian sex ethic. And so I'm thinking to myself, is that even possible? Even in today's culture, all those things. Now, why? We got to say why. Like, if that's the, the context, if that's the Christian sex ethic, we have to ask, why? Why? Because sex is not just physical. It's meant to be emotional, spiritual, physical vulnerability at the deepest level of your being. The deepest level. Like, what, what is the nakedness that it's talking about here? It's transparency at every level, right? And so it's meant to be sacrificial, giving of oneself to another. Why does Jesus come down so strongly on sexual sin on the Sermon on the Mount? It's because he understands the power of it. It's not meant to be used to hurt, abuse, manipulate, control, take advantage of others. See, where, where's the only place that you can be safe enough to experience something like that? To be safe enough, right? Because a lot of people, I, I know that you're feeling, you feel insecure in relationships and you don't feel safe. Where's the only place that you can feel that safe? To be that vulnerable. It's in a covenant relationship where you look at another person, you say, we're gonna be together for the rest of our lives, not based on what I can do for you right now and if you're gonna leave me at any moment. Not in a relationship where I'm just a commodity or it's just a consumer relationship, but in a place where somebody says, I'm with you no matter what. I vow to you no matter what. That's what God's intention is. And so just some takeaways. Number one, be realistic. Be realistic. Um, no lie. Last week, I was driving, and I saw a man on a bird scooter. Yeah, listen. He's getting on 52 West. No lie. No helmet. Nothing. Just, he looked committed to it. He's like, I'm doing this. I'm getting on 52 West right now. I, I have no idea where he was going from there, but he, he was going for it. And I think in many ways, that's an illustration of how we view marriage and relationships. <laughs> we are heading on 52 West on a bird scooter. And it's just like, dude, that is not a good idea. Right, like you gotta think about this. You gotta be realistic. That, that's not a good idea. You at least gotta get a helmet, my man. Like all those things are happening, right? You're thinking through that. And so that's my, just think about that when you're, when you're going into a relationship, right? Like think about that dude on a bird scooter going on 52 West and just be like, okay, am I doing that right now? Paul Tripp said this, he says, your marriage can't bear your personal happiness. Your marriage can't bear your personal happiness. You know, the only one who can do that is God. You know why there are so many people unhappy in marriage is because they are looking to the other person to be God for them. To be the, the one that's just gonna be perfect for them and it's just gonna, I'm gonna make them into who I want them to be. That's not the way that God intended it to be. The second is this, understand the cost. God designed marriage as a covenant, not a consumer relationship. 
And what that means is this is going to cost something. It's sacrificing of oneself for the good of the other. See again, verse 24, when he talks about a man leaving his father and mother, what this is, it's a reordering of priorities. One of the things that I told Laura from the very beginning, and again, she was the first person that I dated that was a Christian. And I told her, and it sounded weird because again, I didn't come from a Christian background, was I want you to love Jesus more than you love me. I want you to love Jesus more than you love me. And I tell this to all people that I'm about to do their wedding. I say, this is, this is what it looks like, right? It's, it's the triangle. And so as you and your spouse are going towards God, you're gonna go closer together. You're gonna go closer together. But there's a cost to marriage that, that we have to be willing to lay down our lives. This is the reordering that happens. Because here's the thing. I didn't realize that when I got married that I, I had to start communicating where I was going to be going, right? Like I, I just thought it was cool to go hang out with the guys and do all the things that I was doing before we got married. And then I remember coming home and Laura being like, where were you? Doing the things that I usually do. You know, it's just like I just hanging out, you know, things like that. You got to communicate, buddy. Like, you can't just go anymore. Like, you're married now. And so there is a cost that there are some things that you used to do in your old life that you just can't do anymore. There are times where I would love to go surfing. I love to go do all those things. I just can't because it's a reordering of priorities now in my life. And so there is a cost to all of this. And being in a real relationship, I have to adjust. Third, Seek God in every season. Seek God in every season. Single, married, family, whatever it may be. Seek God. See, what we see here are two seasons. Uh, from the beginning, we see singleness and then newly married. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, just wait till kids happen. Just wait till kids. I mean, that's coming in the next few weeks. We're talking about that. But in the gospel, there, there's... There's no pressure to be anything more than a child of God. There's no pressure to be anything more than a child of God. And we need to understand that first because a lot of us are putting this pressure on ourselves that we've got to be something more than just a child of God. And so I, I'm, in a, I'm in a place of singleness and so I've got to force this thing to happen for me. And again, like I said, people will put that pressure on you, but God doesn't, Jesus doesn't. So seek God in every season. And then lastly, trust in his plan. I think one of my favorite stories is the story of Martin Luther and, and how he, him and his wife um, found one another. And, and it's, it's not romantic at all. Um, there was an article in National Geographic uh, in 2017. It's called the, How a Runaway Nun Helped an Outlaw Monk Change the World. And it tells the story of... of church uh, reformer, Martin Luther, and how he met his wife, uh, Catherine von Bora. And what had happened was during that time, uh, clergy people, uh, whether it be men or women, uh, monks, nuns, weren't allowed to be married. And so there was this law that it was to be celibate. That's it. That's what godliness looked like. Well, uh, Martin Luther, he started reading the Bible and he's like, hold on a second. 
that's not true. <laughs> you know, we see godly people all throughout that are married and things like that. And so he starts to trust in the gospel. He starts to preach the gospel, teach about Jesus. And then uh, he writes this little uh, pamphlet about God's design in marriage. And just if there's a freedom to marry, it's okay for godly people to marry. And so one of his writings gets to the convent where uh, Von Bora was living and her and a group of nuns uh, read it and they were like, whoa, okay, this has changed a lot. Um, so they write this letter. Uh, they, somebody smuggles it out. It gets to Luther and they asked him, um, would you break us out of the convent? Um, now this, during the time, would be an offense that was punishable by death. And Luther said, let's do it. So he arranged for a cart to be sent out in front of the convent um, close to around Easter time. Uh, you know, Jesus rises from the dead. Freedom. Yeah. So it uh, made sense. And um, so this merchant smuggles them out and they get to Luther and um, all the, the women, for the most part, get married except for Catherine Von Bora. And um, so she's hanging around. She says, hey, um, I'm not marrying anybody but you. So you got to make a decision here. And um, he's 41 at the time. He never saw himself as being married. Um, and he prayed a lot because he said that uh, she was very strong-willed and he just had a hard time hanging out with her. He just didn't really like being around her. Um, and so... He said, okay, I think the, this is going to make uh, the angels laugh, the devils weep, and um, so we're going to get married. And so they ended up getting married, and what happens is you should read about it. It's, it's one of the greatest love stories um, that happens because what happens at the end is he, he, um, he said he, 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 would start to call, he, he would start to call her his rib, very romantic, right? Like, you're my rib. But then he would also say, like, Lord Katie and all these things. It just lift her up and elevate her for the woman that she was. And it's just an amazing thing. She played this huge role in the Reformation that we wouldn't have thought, like, this was even possible. And many scholars say that the Reformation would not have been what it was if it was not for who she was and she was an amazing leader and did awesome things and she was around the table where they were talking theology and again partnership partnership trust in God's plan you don't know what could happen at 41 people were looking at Luther and saying laughing at him saying there's no way trust in God's plan his plan is better than ours. See, what does is, what is marriage ultimately point us to? It points us to the gospel. It points us to the gospel. If you've never read the book of Hosea, you should. You know what that book's about? It's about a prophet who was called to marry someone who was a prostitute. And God said, you know what? I, I'm gonna, I want to illustrate my relationship with you. You're unfaithful to me time and time and time again. So this prophet, Hosea, he does it. And he keeps going after his wife again and again and pulling her out of these places that should, shouldn't be. And it's heartbreaking. And he says, I've, covenant, I've covenanted myself to you and I will love you to the very end. 
I'll love you to the very end. What's that a picture of? Remember what I said, Revelation 21? It all points to the grand marriage, the wedding that happens at the end. It's Jesus, the the better Hosea, who keeps running after his bride again and again and keeps pulling us out of that idea that it's about a romantic solution or that we're not good enough and we don't have enough. And so God, I'm not a full person. I'm not who I need to be. I need somebody to fulfill me. No, he's gonna keep pulling us back again and again and saying, I was meant to be the one that you loved for the rest of your life. And I will love you and covenant myself to you all the way to the cross. What's the cross? the greatest symbol of love, the greatest sacrifice of all. And if we don't know that, then we'll keep running to false idols that will never fulfill us. Look to Jesus. He's enough. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the way in which you um, brought this all together, designed this, Lord, from the very start. And I pray that we can see the beautiful design of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And that if there are things in our lives right now that are holding us back from you, that we'll place those to the side and run towards you, God. Because we see you running towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.